Let's use the Intel example. Maybe you should be worried about how to make your semiconductors <laughs> better. Yeah. Maybe that's where your mental energy should be. Sorry, Carol. I'm going to have to move this meeting today. I need a half an hour to short this stock on my competitor. <laughs> Come on. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. When I say gull, what do you think about? Port. Oh, I think you're supposed to say like Steve, Steven Seah is what most people think about. Steven Seah gull? No, but no. I think about port. Uh, Portcha. yeah so we've already done a little bit of global stuff before had a podcast mexico right but now we go around the world this is multi-continental player multi-continental i'm taking it live from portugal recorded pre-recorded from portugal right now it's uh it's fun times man money works Uh, over here too good for you man it's great it's fun Uh, we're worldwide lisbon's beautiful it's a beautiful city. Buy some of that, that fancy, what's it even called? The amazing like dishware. It's all pa- hand painted and stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Killer stuff. Don't, even, don't even get me started. Drop Literally in, don't get something. me started because I'm not sure what you're talking about. So don't get me started. Uh, how are you, man? Oh, I'm I'm good. Yeah, it's nice being out here. And it's it's interesting because, you know, I'm six hours ahead, right, of uh, of Colorado time right now. And so it's middle of the afternoon which is a different time. We're usually recording like first thing in the morning, you know, so kind of a different time. I'm into my day right now. So it's a little different. Totally got you after your game so I can dominate you with any debates that happen today. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> wow. All right. Let's bring it. Let's bring it then. Last week, we said don't rate and review the podcast. This week, we're saying do rate and review the podcast. Please do that. It's incredibly helpful for people to find the pod. So if you could hit that rating, Go write a write a review for us. Super helpful. We love it. And with that, should we jump in? Let's go, Diggles. People are sad, bro. Uh, and here's the thing. I'm gonna so this I'm gonna comment on this Wall Street Journal article called "Most Americans Doubt Their Children Will Be Better Off." And my point here, actually, let me start by giving a couple of the stats here. They gave a few stats in here. Uh, four and five, eighty percent of respondents to this survey that was put up by the Wall Street Journal and Nork said the state of the economy is not so good or poor, one of those two. And nearly half said they expect it will get worse next year. So I read that and I was like, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say the economy is poor right now, but all the signs point to it like being not all the signs, many signs point to the fact that it couldn't not be as as good next year. Got that. Okay. Roughly four in 10, so 40% of folks said that healthcare and housing costs are really big worries. Got it. Makes sense. We talked about that. Two thirds of folks almost said inflation is a major concern. Got that. Okay. There's a bunch of things like this that I understand, right? I, I get where people can, they can open up their eyes and see what's happening in the world. I fully get that. People are not in the financial condition that they wish they were, yada, yada, yada. The thing that got me here was less about how people feel right now and more going back to the headline that most Americans doubt their children will be better off. And I feel like there's so much of 
investing, the economy. We've been talking about bank runs recently. So much of that is about expectations and belief and not just a statement of what's happening. And where I started to get more concerned is when people were saying that they didn't think it could get better. Like they didn't think they could be better off in the future. And if you start that, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm going to pause it right now. Yeah. It, first, it's interesting that um, 80% of people aren't happy with the economy right now. Sure, there's some headwinds, and I think it's a stressful time, but unemployment's at 3.6% or something. Yeah. I mean, like, what, are, what wow. are we trying to get to? Negative yeah. 10%? <laughs> Seriously. I mean, how how you have complaints right now? Like, in the one off case, yeah, I lost my job or I'm struggling with XYZ. I totally get it. But that doesn't seem like 80% of the population, man. Yeah. I, I think these people are a little crazy that way or don't understand history potentially because if they ask me if the economic conditions are presenting stresses, I'd say absolutely. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm not going to rate the economy as poor right now. That basically has no retrospective on what the yeah. economy typically you, looks like. You, you know these types of things are all – it's sentiment. It's not – they're not looking at facts. Right. It's sure. like, how did you feel today about the economy? And in the economy in people's heads is like, when I bought eggs, how did that feel? How do I feel like my financial position is right? Like that, that's all the economy, right? It's not what are gas prices and unemployment and all that jazz. Yeah. When's the last time you read The Grapes of Wrath? Long time ago. I don't remember. It's a very long time okay. ago. If you were to pick it up today, the one of the things that would stick out to you is, as people are moving west and uh, people are depressed and having a hard time making ends meet. Yep. There's this fear of this brand new scary thing called the tractor. The tractor can do the work of 20 men, Diggles, and it's going to oh destroy goodness. the world. Oh, my goodness. Point is, there's always something like that. And right well, what now, happened? I think it's Hold on. What happened? Intelligence. What do you mean? Did the tractor come? Oh, the tractor. Tractor came, baby. How are you gonna start a story and not finish it? Yeah, you, you've read the book. Everyone's read the book. I don't have to explain the book to you, right? Yeah. Point is, maybe some of this pessimism around your kids being worse off than you is just maybe it's always been around. Uh, and the current stressor, like I mentioned, might be artificial intelligence today. It might be automation. It might be, but the point is that stuff's been around for a long time. I understand. I this is where I end up talking way too much about real estate. But I understand having this stress of going, real estate's way too expensive for me and my family at middle age. How do my kids afford a starter home in the next few decades? That's a definite yeah. stressor for me. But I also think you kind of have to deal with the hang you're dealt and like find a way, man. So I would not answer this question. I might say I think it's harder than it was for me or maybe my parents for my kids to end up on top but the mindset yeah. of that's yeah. not going to happen reminds me of like the little inch in the code book almost i mean i just don't want to fall into that yeah time. that's that's the thing and to put a couple numbers behind it so 78 percent of people said they don't feel confident that their children will be better off than them which is the highest number of people that didn't feel confident it's kind of there's a lot of weird negatives or whatever in there since i yeah. started asking this question in 1990 and then 12% of people said that right now they're very happy, which is, the, which is the lowest number they've seen in the survey since they started asking the question in 1972. So it is different than historicals. 
And to your point, like that's my whole thing to your point is that this whole, this is a fiat system. The whole system works because of faith. Uh, Warren Buffett's whole bet on America thing happens because people wake up the next day and they want to be productive. They want to yep. build. They want to be better than today. And I'm just I'm hope I'm hoping and I should be hopeful, optimistic about it, hoping that people aren't saying, I don't think it'll be better. Therefore, I'm just going to give up. Hopefully, people are saying, I don't think it's going to be better. So let's change some ish. Let's get out there with Greta Thornburg or whatever and get arrested trying to change some ish. Maybe not about the climate, but everything else. And the climate, we do that too, but other stuff too. Uh, so maybe. This is why I think uh, this is the article you wanted to talk about today. And that's good. I like this article. But it goes to your your mindset in terms of like worrying about the average American consumer and upward mobility and education and everything else. Because if the country becomes a place where people th throw in the towel and rather than fight hard to get what they, you know, like their God-given right of, of the ability to succeed with the American dream, I think yep. that's when the downward spell yes. truly smarts, starts. Excuse me. Like, so yeah, you have to, the mindset, the dream has to be something that you can sell. And if it gets to a point where it's not, I get concerned. Yes. And this is what America is. Let me tell you what America is. Are you familiar with Lynette Richardson? No. Lynette Richardson, let me educate you right quick. Lynette Richardson is a 62-year-old administrator for a residential facility that was interviewed in this article. So you shouldn't have been familiar with Lynette Richardson here. <laughs> anyway. I thought um, she was like my grandma's poker buddy or something. Yeah, I mean. yeah, exa yeah exactly. Could be. Could be. So... Uh, in this survey, Lynette described herself as pretty happy. So it's like the middle of the road. You're not very happy. You're not unhappy. Pretty happy. Now, Lynette is America. Lynette has suffered two heart attacks last year, lost her job of 17 years, and said, I'm pretty happy. You know why? This is what Lynette said. I should have died twice last year. I feel very lucky. That, is, to me, that's like the difference in attitude between... How you say, ooh, what could have been? Nah, I'm good. I'm still here. Let's keep on working, right? And the unemployment rate is at, you know, like record 60-year lows. So I feel terrible about the economy. Like it's a mindset difference. And we got to get back to America. Not in back. Let me just be clear. When I say back, I don't really want to go fully back to America. <laughs> I want to build the new I want to like do, do new America. But what I meant was just the mindset, the entrepreneurial mindset of we can always do better. I don't want to have this be a time thing. Yeah, you're not ready for outhouses and who knows what else. I'm not. No, very good. All right, what's in your bowl? You heard about this mansion tax in Los Angeles? No. All right. Starting April 1st, there is a voter-approved measure called Measure ULA, which is we're going to call it the mansion tax. That's what is known as on the streets. <laughs> street oh, name. Okay. The okay. streets. Wait, the streets that have mansions on them. No, like on the, you know, on yes. the streets. On, on the streets. Okay. Uh, the streets in LA have been overrun with homelessness for lack of affordability, uh, as happened pretty much all over the states. But I think the West has been hit particularly hard with some of this. The way Los Angeles has chosen to attack this problem is they had a measure on the ballot which passed that imposes a 5% property tax sale if the property sells for more than $5 million and a 5.5% tax if the property 
sells above the $10 million mark. The so, taxes must be paid by the seller. Okay. So just, just for clarity, this is a brand new tax that would be added to other capital gains and anything else you have, right? It's not a it's replacing a tax of sorts. Brand new tax. So okay. If, okay. The, if you sell a $11 million property on March 31st, you dodge a 5.5% tax that would be yep. due if you sell that same property on April okay. second. Okay. Okay. Ooh, that's a meaningful amount of money. Very meaningful. Now there are estimated forty-two thousand people who are homeless in the city of Los Angeles as of February twenty-two, and that number we think five years back that number was around twenty-eight thousand. So more of a problem. That money goes to affordable housing products, uh, projects, and other things that are designed to a attack the housing crisis. Right. When the measure was passed, it was thought that this would raise an additional uh, $1.1 billion for affordable housing initiatives, but that's since been lowered. They now think it's closer to $700 million. So again, meaningful amounts of money, right? And the general idea here, I think I support. I think the general idea is we have affordability crisis. It's well proven. I can find the um, academic papers if anyone wants them that the price of a home is the most correlated cause of homelessness. So in places where you can buy a home for 50K or 150K, homelessness is less of a problem than places where the average house sells for a million bucks or three million bucks. Makes sense, but that's more common than drug use. That's more common than anything else. Price of a home is the number one driver of homelessness. I think I generally support the idea here. But Dougals, you've known me long enough to know when we start messing with free markets, I always get a little uh, uncomfortable with that. So I'll just pause and get your general take on the plan of attack here. And then we can talk about what this is creating right now this week in terms of seller incentives, which is fascinating. Oh, wow. I'm excited to hear about that. So I don't want to make this short. What I'm trying to think through is, you know, that like second, third order thinking. Uh, or yeah. level thinking, whatever it might be. And which I think you're probably going to touch, start touching on some of this with the incentive piece, because like, what does this end up doing to not just now in the markets, but I'm thinking about people that want to buy houses in the future, how you start to think about that home, one to your free market point. We're probably playing with stuff we have no idea what it's going to cause. And so that's going to be, mm -hmm. there's going to be some kind of an issue. Definitely. I think the way to raise money, or sorry, the fact that we're raising money for that cause sounds fantastic. And I also kind of, but I also kind of think about 700 million ish, we think we're going to get. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I would take $700 million for someone to give it to me, but it doesn't sound, I don't know what kind of a dent that makes, like, is what I'm trying to figure out. Like, because when you're, if you're playing with a free market, if you're playing with a market like this, I would think you should have a, like the amount of money you're going to get should like take care of the issue. Like, so at least you go, this issue's handled. <laughs> now we have to deal with whatever the, the, the repercussions of it are. But for some reason, that amount of money doesn't seem like it's going to take care of the issue. I think is like, well, part of the, the issues, I think Jeff Bezos could fly down with a hundred billion. I mean, I'm not sure that he has that with 20 billion, some 
ridiculous yeah. sum of money. And I'm not sure that the issue is fully taken care of. Like this is a complex issue that doesn't yeah, yeah, just yeah. go away you by writing the check. mental so, health, drug use, substance. It looks like a lot of stuff that ends so up going much, into it. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's get to incentives. Okay, so currently there is a seven bedroom property in Bel Air. This is just one example where that <laughs> the offering that is offering any agent that purchases things before April 1st, a million dollar bonus, million bucks. You get your client. Hold, hold, hold on. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's a $7 million property. No, it's a seven bedroom. It's a 27 bedroom, eight million dollar okay. home. I was like, cause their math is not good <laughs> in, that, <laughs> in that world. <laughs> but point being all, all these incentives, they're basically the whole articles about the fire sale that's happening in properties over five million dollars right now because yeah. everyone wants to sell it before they have to pay that tax. And so what they're willing to do is take huge concessions on the sales price wow. in order to not write that check to the city of Los Angeles. Wow. So Dougals, I know you're looking for your like seventh home, maybe a Los Angeles <laughs> mansion. Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly what I was I was looking to jump into. That yeah, that is a thing. Wow. I'm also just I'm thinking about what that does for um, you know, as I talked about like future home prices. Like, do you I, I don't know. This is a tricky, this is a, like a, a multi-order issue that they're gonna cause, but I don't know. I mean, I, the five does, does this list out how many homes? kind of fall into that even from like a value perspective la it's got a it can't be a tiny number that's not from this article but there is a there is a gentleman here arguing that in los angeles a five million dollar home might not necessarily be owned by millionaires now i think his point is it could have appreciated <laughs> a lot five million is still a decent chunk of change right but the yeah that's a fair point dude it was like uh, the example here is a 4,000 square foot modern house in West Hollywood. The point being, it's probably a very nice house, yeah. but it's not, it's not a palace. The very picture of extravagance. I mean, the, yeah. the formal definition of a mansion, I believe, is over 5,000 square feet. And there will be a fair amount of homes in the city of Los Angeles yeah, yeah, yeah. that are not considered mansions that are subject to at least a 4% tax on sales. Just a fascinating one. This is where... Like you said, my mind goes crazy with the unintended consequences. We're already seeing some of those. Yep. It, the article didn't spell out if this is indexed to inflation. So like, I mean, a $5 million home today is going to be drastically different than a $5 million home in 2045. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'd hope that threshold hmm. heads up. There's also all the arguments against people saying, well, all the nice houses are just going to be built outside of los angeles city limits you know you're going to artificially yeah. create or, these new communities or yeah or they're going to or they're going to be in the limits but they're going to like vatican city it you know just say like this is actually not official like it's in los angeles but we're going to draw this line around this neighborhood that technically is like a what do they call those um it's not unclaimed but you know what i'm saying like there are some like cities that end up being whatever it is yeah um yeah there's something you're gonna see lots of sales going forward at 4.999 million yeah can guarantee it i think you're also going to see people because um statewide we've talked about this on the show with our boy connor daughtry that you can do the backyard units the adus in the statewide for california as yeah. they're trying to address the 
housing crisis. I think you'll see a lot of people either get really creative with how they draw their boundaries and build like two mansions that are on separate properties. Something that like that. You can very easily walk between. And then they'll say, we sell these together, even though they're two separate yep. properties and they'll both yep. sell at 4 million bucks. Like unintended yep. two, two things here are crazy. Two things. One is the thing we know won't happen is that people are going to be selling their house for over $5 million and paying this tax. We don't know how they're not going to do it, but we know that's not going to happen. Well, which the, is interesting when you go to the ballot and you say this will raise a billion bucks. And then a few months later, you say this might raise 700 million. Yeah, exactly. And when humans actually get involved, maybe it might raise 500 million. Like, yeah, exactly. Just, exactly. The second thing is we should get Connor on here. That'd be a fascinating discussion. Yeah, I think we yeah. should. He's, yeah, let's, he's so let's do talented. it. Let's do it. Okay. What's next for you, Diggles? All right. I'm going to reach into the fishbowl and talk about, I'm going to call it close to insider trading, like side sider trading is what I'm going to call this. That's, that is not going to stick either. I've been coming up with lots of things that won't stick. This is a piece in ProPublica, which we talked about last year. We were talking about Pro, ProPublica because they got all the, the tax data and we're looking at people that were evading taxes. This allegedly, this time around, they reached into their leaked treasure trove of IRS data to look at people like executives that have been trading the shares of competitors' stock to make money. I'm going to take a little pause here. When you think about insider trading, and you is all you, all y'alls, when you think about insider trading, what you typically think about, for good reason, is you are an executive of your own company that has material, non-public information about your own company, or you might be a friend or family member of an executive at a company and therefore have material, non-public information about that company and you use that to trade. But it's like a stock that you know a lot about because you are intimately involved. This is a, let's call it like a CEO of a company trading on the stock of someone that is competing against you. And I'm, let me give two examples and then I'll, I'll uh, get my emotions about this. So one example, there is the CEO of MGA Entertainment, very well known for Bratz fashion dolls. You know those old Bratz dolls? Yeah. Okay. Never knew what the name of the company was until this article that made those, but MGA Entertainment. Make those little Bratz fashion dolls, which competes with our good friend Barbie over at Mattel. Mattel makes the Barbie dolls. This guy traded hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Mattel stock, the CEO of MGA Entertainment, between 2005 and 2019. Hundreds of millions of dollars of the competitor stock. And this goes both ways. So there were times where the Bratz would come out with like a new line and he would short Mattel stock and say, that's, that's about to go down because then he knows he's coming out with this information. Sometimes he'd hold, he'd have a long position on Mattel stock. How the heck? Is you going to own the stock of your competitor? Like, how is you going to do that? Is like, is my question. Another example, there's a CEO of a company called MedPace. And similar, this is in the, the medical healthcare industry and was shorting. So this is a circumstance a little bit different, it seems like, than the Bratz one. This is a circumstance where this person had inside information about the other company because they'd go to like industry conferences and stuff like that and just like hear what's happening. 
and shorted the stock of a competitor like the day before it was revealed to the SEC that bad stuff was going on. Stock drops by 25%, gets back in <laughs> at that price. And so within like a two-day period, shorted and then bought like the stock. This stuff seems ridiculous. And ProPublica, again, just as a reminder, I mentioned this or alluded to it earlier. This wasn't, uh, they didn't like take investigators and go up into companies and stuff to learn this. What they did was they just had a whole bunch of information from the IRS on uh, trades. And so they just outside in looked at anomalies, basically in, in trading information. This is fascinating to me. There are other examples in this article. I'm just like, what what is people doing? <laughs> like, is is the, well, they're trying to make money. I know what people's is doing, but out of this world reaction. You, I mean, you're ready to be surprised. I'm not too fired up about this. Hold on. So you think it's cool? Well, okay. I um, what always baffles me is the people that have millions or tens of millions of dollars that feel like they actively need to work to get like. I have 50 million and I have to get to 60 million. Like that always is an interesting mindset yep. to me, but that's the human psyche thing of always you get immediately comfortable with your current level of wealth and then you strive for the next. So that's the thing that baffles me. Like these guys were not hurting to go out to a nice dinner or to have a vacation home already. Like, so the strive for more money baffles me. Do I think you should do this as an acting CEO? I do not. I would hope if I was in that situation, I would not. But do I think that as a person that runs a very successful company in this space, you have intimate knowledge about your industry and you have the, I want to say right, but the ability to use that knowledge in a way that makes sense for you. Now, in the one example you gave with the Brat stall where they're coming out with a new line, that feels like insider trading when you're training your competitor. Like that one's a little shit, yeah, but yeah, yeah, the yeah. other stuff in terms of like, I understand this space so well because I'm a CEO in this industry. So I understand the strengths and weaknesses of my competitors. And I want to turn that into a few bucks. Like I would love for these guys to wait till they're retired to do it, but that's, yeah, they have so, a unique set of skills. So they're like Liam Neeson. Here's, yeah, here, here's my deal. I where where I would feel cool with this is if you if you're like the CEO of Nvidia, aka Vidia, if you're the CEO, you're Jensen, the CEO of Nvidia, and it's whatever. Let's go like five six years ago, and you go, Nvidia's crushing it. I know we're crushing it, and the semiconductor game overall is kind of crushing it. And you decide that. You just want to diversify a bit, but you like you want to stay in semiconductors, and so you're going to buy like a either a semiconductor ETF or you know have a small position in some other in the industry, right? Because you know the industry is going to crush, and you want to diversify a little bit. All right, sure. If you even in the opposite direction, if you're like I'm, Nvidia is crushing it, and we're going to crush it so bad, everybody else is going to get hurt, and you short all the other stocks. I'd actually applaud you. <laughs> I'd be like, that's gangsta, and I want to come like, to work tomorrow. It's like Pete Rose gambling right there. It, I only gambled on my teams <laughs> to win. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, like if you want to short all your competitors because that's how much you believe in your company, I'm gold with that too. What I am not gold with is when news is coming out tomorrow about a thing <laughs> and you decide to short your competitors or sell your own stock in a competitor. Okay, I'm not cool with that. I No, 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 no. Hold on. We get to that. I'm not cool with that. 
And I'm also not cool with you having a long position for a long period of time in a competitor. Like if let's just use Jensen again. Sorry, Jensen. I'm not, this is just, I'm just picking on you because you're you. I mean, like not, sorry, not because you're you, just because you are a person. If you're, if you're Jensen over in NVIDIA and you said, I'm actually going to have 10% of my portfolio that's sitting in AMD. I'm not showing up tomorrow. Hey, listen, I got to interrupt there. Proud Intel shareholder over here. That, but nobody's buying Intel. So let's. That CEO, <laughs> he would have been smart to buy all his competitors in a long position about four years ago. <laughs> no, to exactly. his risk because he's going to get kicked to the curb. That's my point. If, so if, if you heard news that Intel CEO, whose name I cannot think of right now, Intel CEO like Geyser or something, yeah, was yeah. buying was buying shares of all their competitors. <laughs> what would you? I wouldn't be excited about it, but I also don't think the guy needs to go to jail. Okay, I mean, right. like, okay, um, okay, okay, yeah. It's kind of like it's kind of like I don't like this. It leaves a bad taste in my mouth. But like I said, I really wish they'd do this when they were retired. But if you're retired, man, okay. Here's the other thing that. I think you forget about Dougals. All these guys get paid ridiculous sums of money to go be on boards, not always of their direct competitors, but like of other friendly companies. <laughs> like never the of their direct competitors. Like uh, who's... No, I, okay, so ne yes, never of their direct. But like th this, I used to be a CEO at a Fortune 500 company, handshake, money flies to me for free thing happens 99% of the time. I don't like they're using like world-class expertise to make money in the industry that they're an expert in. Yeah. But don't you do that do in that. your own company? You would hope so. Again, I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm not saying like, these are the CEOs that I want running. You're not emulating. Money, You're not emulating. But these like it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I get that. Okay. All right, all right. I, I like yeah. the reporting. It's uh, absolutely fascinating. I didn't really think this was going on just because it seems, again, it seems like, so much work when maybe you should be worrying about <laughs> let's use the intel example maybe you should be worrying about how to make your semiconductors <laughs> better yeah. you ever think about that one maybe that's where your mental energy should be not taking oh sorry carol i'm gonna have to move this meeting today i need a half an hour to short this stock on my competitor <laughs> <laughs> come on oh man all right what you got the wall street journal has this article it's called Here's what retirement looks like with less than a million dollars in America. Interviews five retirees. Really quick hit here. One of these retirees ended up with less than a million bucks. And I'm not throwing shade because that's still a decent chunk of change. Because in 2008, they got spooked. They pulled all their money out at the bottom and effectively held cash for the next 13 years. Don't do that, people. That's not... This guy, this couple did that because... That felt like the safe thing to do. That's actually the yeah. risky thing to do because they guaranteed that they got a 1% return for the next 13 years. They needed a 7 to 10% return, which is the historical average investing in <laughs> diversified mixed stocks. Like, so don't put yourself in the poorhouse because you get spooked. Do not do it. Now, go contact a financial advisor or someone else. We don't give investment advice on the show to talk through, to explain that to you. Every time I read something like that, I get fired up. People think they're making the safe decision. They actually end up making the risky decision. And then they put themselves in the poorhouse. I, I can't stress what you just said enough. Uh, absolutely right. And I understand, as you do, the, the emotion right, that goes into it. But you just got to 
you really just gotta. And there was one, hold on, I'm going to pull this up. Cause one, one thing I'll say this generically is I've really enjoyed. There are articles. The wall street journal is, I don't remember them. Them. You used to have done this. I can't think of the right English way to say that used to having have done this anyway. Uh, but but I have noticed over like the last year, maybe even the last six months, they've been doing more of these articles where they have if the article is mostly um, like little vignettes, like of individuals, and it's pretty cool. And they do different price points. I mean, this is probably the fifth in a series of different yep. what their retirement looks like, and it's fun to see the perspective from real life individuals who are living uh, through that at the moment. Exactly. I do. I find these to be really interesting. It's like like real examples. I think are super duper helpful um, to folks. It was like uh, when can't remember if I mentioned this to you or not, but when we got married, I uh, I kept like a spreadsheet. Obviously, kept a spreadsheet of like all of the stuff and have like a whole folder of the like all the things we actually did. And so um, when people after that would ask for some advice, I'd be like, I'm going to share my whole folder with you, which is not what they were asking for, <laughs> by the way. I realize so no one's used this, obviously. But I find it to be helpful to be like, oh, you, this is literally how much you spent there versus when you go to some of the wedding websites, right? So I find these to be super helpful to look at what people are spending every month, how much they actually saved, what they invested in. Like, I find it to be really helpful. I think it's a cool article. I have a similar story when we did an addition on the house. People would ask me how much it costs and where we spend the money. So I'd send them to the spreadsheet. Spreadsheet would say like, well, so go to eBay, buy the Home Depot coupon for the competitors. Then wait till this time of the year when that Home Depot product goes on sale. Then use your coupon. That <laughs> <laughs> Very detailed about how to be a total value investor, cheapskate. And uh, no, everyone was like, well, so it actually doesn't cost us. It costs way more than this because um, we're not buying coupons. <laughs> Cool. That's good stuff. What's next for you? All right. I got one more thing. And this is another what the heck is people doing? Or what is what the heck is people thinking? Maybe more so in a very different way than ProPublica piece. This is about rate expectations. And we're talking interest rate expectations. We've been saying, I think for close to probably six months now, we're like, why won't people just believe the Fed? Like, just believe the Fed. Even uh, last, it was last week uh, when you you put me on the the hot coals, and you said, "No, what would you do next week? What would you do if you were Powell? You know, or the?" And I said, "I would pause." I said, "I would pause," and I said, "If if they raise rates, they're saying we mean it. Like we mean that we are trying to take down inflation here. Why won't people just believe them?" And when you look at what current market expectations, according to this graph we're looking at from uh, from our boy Charlie on the twits, is they're saying that they're expecting rate cuts basically for the rest of the year, getting down to 3.75 to 4% range by December of 2023. What, the, the what? current rate expectations, because it's hard to describe this over the podcast, but is basically... A slope of negative 0.5 through January 2025, going all the way down from current rates to like 2.7%. Like everyone seems to just expect us to this to be a blip to go back to near zero rates. And like we're going to have near zero rates forever. There's no chance you get inflation under control if you do this. What I, one thing I thoroughly enjoy here is Powell. 
So the person that, unless he's trying to fool everybody, like the person you should probably listen to, Powell says the Federal Open Market Committee, right? This is the group that's going to get together, talk about what interest rates should be, right? And Powell says FOMC participants don't see rate cuts this year. They just don't. And so we take this information and go, eh, they're probably going to cut rates every meeting for the rest of the year. A couple pauses in there. That's, That's yeah. Here's here's what um, market expectations say. May meeting pause. June meeting cut twenty five bips. July meeting cut twenty five bips. September meeting cut twenty five bips. November pause and December cut twenty five bips. Are you insane? Like, how is this the consensus view out there? This is not happening. Yeah. Well, and I don't predict the future, so I don't want to be that strong. This is a poor prediction. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, this is a poor prediction. There are many like it, but this one is yours. The, not you, not Skippy's. But the the only thing I can think of is, which still, this doesn't make sense. This does not make sense in this world. The only, only thing I can think of is if the models have as the, uh, whatever the direct input is, something completely different. Like they're saying, we believe that there's going to be a 15% positive return in the stock market this year. And so we're saying that is true. If that's going to be true, then what else must be true? Oh, <laughs> we must cut rates by this amount, right? Now, that assumption is a bunch of who to lally, but it's that's the only thing I think of is that there must be something else that they're actually having as like the input here. And then this is one of the outputs. It does not make sense on its own, well, not even in a vacuum. I think there's a really singular view that the odds of a recession seem to be higher than they have been recently. Mm -hmm. And historically, ah. when there's a recession, the Fed cuts rates. But historically, you don't have inflation that peaked at 10% and it's still at six plus. So yeah, just listen to the man. He, he said inflation <laughs> is the number one goal. He continues to say that. Sure, he's concerned about banks. I mean, I think a pause is much more likely than it has been in the recent future yeah. because of the bank turmoil. But cutting rates is not like kind of off radar. the table. Yeah. <laughs> like it... I, so. The more important point here is make sure none of your investments are based on a hypothesis of rates going up or down. Yeah. <laughs> like just say, I don't know. Um, yeah, exactly. And th I mean, this sits in the camp of not owning, continuing to not own long term treasuries um, or long term CDs. Like because if expectations are are going to be cut, then the longer term you're going to buy, the lower the interest rate is going to be, or at least the lower the increase in interest is going to be. So you're going to want to sit in something if you want to sit in there. That's going to either be short term or medium at the most. If expectations yeah. are sitting like here, completely agreed. Oh my goodness, who to lally? This is like the fifth thing today that I'm just flabbergasted by. Um, <laughs> all right, last thing on my end, we're diving into some accounting, uh, an accounting fraud indicator called the M score. Mm. You ever heard of this thing, Diggles? Uh, first time was when I read this article you sent over to me. Yeah. So according to a professor at the University of Indiana, the tool indicates the most risk of earnings manipulation um, in 40 years. Now, this is not a scare tactic. I don't want you guys to freak out about anything. But it's it's super interesting thought experiment. So this M score is made up of uh, eight factors, but I'm going to just highlight three of them that I think hammer the point home. 
it says if there's an abrupt change in receivables or the amount of the value of assets that cannot be sold or accruals, which is a type of expense that those like start to be red flags for a company possibly manipulating things to make their profitability look better than it is. This metric was one of the first to identify Enron. And I think it's a valid metric. Like if you're a business owner, you know what manipulating the three things I talked about might do to (laughs) your company's financials and how that would be tempting when things struggle to just be like, oh, I think we're going to show a little more in our accounts receivable that might not actually be there. Or we're going to say we have these assets that aren't clearly tied to a plant or property or other equipment like um a couple things kind of see what? sorry i got i was trying to hold back but i got i got to Go. hop in here a couple things so one it's important from a context perspective that as you stated you said this is like a a predictor of fraud right that might exist out there yes this score right and the the probability associated with it when we say the highest like it's been in a long time, the score fluctuates between 0.3% and like 0.5%. So I'm, I just want to go back to the point you raised around. You're not trying to raise some major like alarm here. There's like in, in the history, the 50 year history, they have this thing. The entire scale basically fluctuates between a 0.3% and aggregate and a 0.5% in aggregate. These very are, point. <laughs> I mean, these are very, very tiny. Now, I think the point of it is it's all relative anyway. So if you look at the chart, cool. I will also say I really like I like when you were diving into those things because I agree that this is what was going on in my head. Um, I agree that if you're manipulating, that these are some things that you'd want to play with. It was also occurring to me that some of this before your company actually just was in a bad place would also like fraud or not. These would also be things that that would be bad. Like, for example, if your receivables, so the amount that you're supposed to be bringing in, but you have not collected yet, mm-hmm. starts to really go up, that might be that people aren't paying you on time. <laughs> it might be. And that happening before people don't have cash is just an indicator that things are about to get bad independent of fraud. And so outside of fraud, I was like, this is these are interesting things to look at, even if it's not a fraud case. I, that was kind of my thought. I love that you went there because that's right, exactly where I'm going. When I see the companies I work with enter a cash crunch, it's often because they're they're doing great work, but the people that owe them money stop paying them money because the, the cash crunch cascades downhill, right? So it starts one place, then they stop paying their bills. The receivables grow for the company that is in good financial health and it's it's that's exactly a relevant yeah. point is some of this just speaks to a higher potential for fraud but that's not really the headline it speaks to an economy where companies start to struggle and therefore the receivable balance goes up and then you start to worry about if there's bad debt or <laughs> if you're going to get paid yes. for those receivables effectively yeah. that's the best way to say it so it's fascinating like i just this is pretty deep in the finance and accounting nerdland but um, it's it's pretty good stuff. I like the metric and I like that they're highlighting it now. It's worth watching. That's it. Fully agreed. Fully agree with that. 
Uh, and in, in combination with uh, the bank stuff that's going on right now, I think it even becomes more important. Because like, it's these compounding factors are just fascinating. Glad you brought this up. Loved reading it. All right. We've reached the time of the show where I kick Dougals out into the streets of Portugal to go have some fun. <laughs> Drink uh, a bottled Coca-Cola for me. All right. Okay. I probably won't do that, but yeah. Well, hey, my other option was to jump in the ocean and get some surf I'm lessons. Definitely I know not you're not going to do that. Yeah, so do that. These all sound like fun things. I'm not doing any of those Best things. I got. All right. Uh, <laughs> please rate and review the podcast. Hit us up with premium subscription, Skippy Dougal at supercast.com. You get the show early. Really helps the show. And uh, share the, the pod with a friend this week. That also helps a ton. So we will talk to you next week. Thank you, everybody. Peace.